The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to everybody here in the name of Jesus. Thanks for being with us. Visitors, a special, special welcome to you. If you don't know the Springs well, we are a people being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And we think about our life and our church life activity here around three rhythms, around the rhythms of gather, grow, and go. So we regularly gather in worship around the Lordship of Jesus And we regularly grow in our grace and faith through our connections groups and classes. And we go. We go share God's love with the world. So if you are here for the first time or you've been gathering with us for a while, uh, we just want to invite you, if you've never really taken that step to go deeper into this church's life, to begin not just gathering but growing with us and going with us. We want to invite you to be a part of what's going on here in the kingdom of God. Let's begin together in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day, this opportunity to worship you together with one voice as one body, united around the one Jesus Christ. God, bless us as we open up your scriptures this morning. As we open up your word, God, I ask for the gift of preaching today, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us how to live out these scriptures in our own day. We give thanks for your spirit, for Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Now, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So when we last left our story of the Spirit-powered church, it was Pentecost. We were in Acts chapter 2 last week, the coming of the Holy Spirit in wind and fire, the speaking of the gospel in all of these disparate languages. And we left with Peter preaching the very first Christian sermon on Pentecost and 3,000 people accepting his invitation to repentance, baptism, to forgiveness, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And right after Luke tells us that 3,000 were added to the number of the church that day, Luke says that these people, these Christians, 
devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. So the Christian church has been founded upon this great, great gift of the Holy Spirit. And as the church is founded and constituted and powered by this incomparable gift, they begin to order their lives around gift. They begin to order their lives, their common life, their economy around this concept of gift. And this is precisely why they believed and were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and distributed to all as any had need, an economy of gift. You see, more than any other gospel, the gospel of Luke is concerned with possessions. Perhaps more than any other writer in the New Testament, Luke is concerned in his gospel and in the book of Acts with our posture towards material goods, resources, possessions. Right? It's only in the gospel of Luke that we get this real great focus on the dangerous place that rich and wealthy people can have in relation to the kingdom of God. Right? Because there's, in Luke, it's only there that we get the parable of the rich fool, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's only in Luke's gospel where we get Mary's song, her Magnificat, where she sings, God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. It's only in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And it's only in Luke's gospel that Jesus begins his ministry quoting Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So if Jesus' ministry begins that way in Luke's gospel, we shouldn't be surprised to see it coming to fruition in the book of Acts. We shouldn't be surprised to see it coming to fruition in our text this morning, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. The whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. So when Luke says that, when he says there's not a needy person among them, he's channeling something from the Old Testament, actually. Right, so remember when Jesus said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? He's talking there about the year of Jubilee, 
right? That year that happened every 50 years when debts were remitted and forgiven and slaves were set free and the mercy of God was manifest. And the year of Jubilee happened every seven sabbatical years, right? So the sabbatical year happened every seven years, seven times seven, 49. The 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And when Deuteronomy 15 describes the sabbatical year, this is what it says. God says, there will, however, be no one in need among you. Because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy. This is what Luke is channeling in Acts chapter 4, right? When Luke says that there was not a needy person among them, the striking claim that he's making is that in the church we find God's true intentions for his covenant community. That the covenant community God established in Israel and and relaunched in the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ is now coming to fruition in this early Christian church. These Christians, as they provide for one another, as they share, as they renounce, as they share a common life, as they take care of those in need, are witnessing to the true shape of human life in covenant with God. But the question is, do we look at all like this church? Does our church today in America, the 21st century, Oklahoma, do we look at all like this church in Acts chapter 4? I like to think of this in terms of TV shows, actually, right? So if you watch uh, a TV show on, say, a streaming platform like Netflix or Hulu, one of the wonderful things is that you can kind of access any episode from any season basically at any time. And so one of the things I like to do is that if I finish a, a TV series and I finally watch that final series finale, I like to go right back to the pilot right after that, because I want to see the discrepancies from where the show began to where it ended. I want to go back and see the differences from the pilot, the very first episode of the show, to the very end, and oftentimes I will say it's very different. There are some shows that are pretty strongly defined from the very beginning and don't change a whole lot, but there are many shows that if you go back to the first episode, very different, right? There's old characters that get dropped along the way. There's new characters that get added throughout the show. There's old characters that are so different they may as well be new characters. Plots and trajectories have changed. Production value, lighting, pacing, tone, all of these things can be drastically different by the time you get to that final episode. And so when we look at the church in Acts, are we at all like that pilot episode of the Christian church? Or are we completely unrecognizable? Now, for one thing, there's 2,000 years of distance between us, 
There's geographical distance between us. We shouldn't look exactly like the church in the book of Acts. But when we're talking about the virtues, the character, and the fidelity to Jesus Christ, do we even bear a family resemblance? Again, part of that problem is the distance, right? We live in a completely different economy today than we did in the ancient world. And it's a good thing in many regards. It's nice to live not in an ancient Mediterranean economy. But our economy is different, right? It kind of operates on what we would probably call consumerism, right? Our economy is driven by this this need for us to continue to purchase and purchase and purchase, to consume, 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 to get more and more. And when we talk about consumerism in America in the 21st century, I think we often talk about it in terms of attachment, right? We got to accumulate and acquire and obtain and get more and more and attach ourselves to our material goods. But I actually think it's a little more accurate and appropriate to talk about consumerism in America in terms of detachment. Right? So, I don't cling to my worldly possessions. I let go so I can get new possessions. Right? I don't cling to goods and goods and goods. I have to let go of those goods to get the next newer, the next one, the next version, that one, this one. Right? We have a detachment, actually, from our material goods. Now, I'm sure there's some of us that have a problem with hoarding money, but I would say almost all of us have a problem spending money. We're detached from material goods in America. And in that way, ironically, we bear kind of an affinity with the early Christians. All right, the early Christians also had a, had a bit of a detachment from material goods, from possessions. It's one of the reasons they were able to share and have life in common the way that they did and take care of one another and distribute as needed. But I hope you can see right away this, this drastic difference between consumerist detachment and Christian detachment. Right? Consumerist detachment is let go of my goods so I can get the next goods. But Christian detachment is let go of my goods to attach myself to God and one another. To put it a little bit differently, Christians hold things loosely to hold God and neighbor tightly. Christian detachment from material goods, from possessions, is that we detach, we hold loosely, so we can hold God and one another more tightly. That's precisely what's happening in our text, that they were of one heart and one soul. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. Show me a church that is unified in Christ, 
and I'll show you a church that holds their possessions loosely, that gives freely, that shares radically. So the question remains, how do we live this out today? How do we put Acts 2 and 4 into practice in our own day and age? How do we live this out? And that's, that's really a difficult question for all of Scripture, right? How do we live out the Bible today? Because one of the ways that we figure out how to do that is to read the Bible well, right? To read the parts in light of the whole and to read the whole in light of the parts, to read it in context. And then we've got to cross this massive chasm of 2,000 years of miles and miles in different cultures. How do we live out the Bible today? How do we imaginatively embody in our own day the story defined by Scripture? How do we find a way, a Christian way, to respond to the economic moment in which we find ourselves? A little over a year ago, we had a guest preacher here at the Springs named Alden Bass. Alden is a theology professor at Oklahoma Christian who used to live and work and study and teach in St. Louis. And when Alden and his wife Candace were in St. Louis, they were a part of a campus ministry called, of all things, Acts. And it was with a couple others in that campus ministry that Alden and Candace began to talk about, in 2008, starting an intentional Christian community. And they decided they were going to take their intentional Christian community and put it in North St. Louis. Now, they chose to enter this neighborhood for a couple of reasons. First of all, they had some contacts there already who were working with the Church of Christ there. And secondly, North St. Louis is known to be an extremely violent and impoverished neighborhood. So their goal as Christians was to enter this neighborhood and be a faithful presence and witness to the peace of Christ. And so they began to talk about this and dream about this and... Uh, talk about what kind of core commitments they might have and, and wrote these up. They, be, they began to house hunt for several months. Lo and behold, they found a house on a place called Lotus Avenue. It was built in the 1890s, eight-bedroom house. You can get it for a song because it's an impoverished, violent community. And so on December 13th, 2008, Alden, Candace, and their friends moved into this place that they called Lotus House. And their practices at this house, their community, they defined themselves by four specific practices. First of all, daily prayer. They tried to begin and end every day with prayer together. Secondly, meals. They tried to eat most meals together at the house at night, and on Fridays, they would hold a community meal that was open to anybody that wanted to attend. Thirdly, service. They would try and serve together as a group at least once a week somewhere in their neighborhood. And finally, 
one of the practices that defined them was their economic sharing. So at Lotus House, uh, they called this kind of a modified sharing of goods, and it manifested itself in a few different ways. First of all, they owned the house together. Everybody who bought the house, moved in together, they owned the house as common property together. Secondly, on top of owning the house together, everybody's personal possessions were considered communal possessions, and anybody would be able to use them as long as they asked for permission first. And finally, everybody in the house who had an income contributed 25% of their income to the house community together. If you didn't have an income and you were able, you were expected to contribute with labor, but if you had an income, 25% of it went towards Lotus House together. And in their founding document, the kind of document that regulated their life together at Lotus House, they, they wrote this. They said, shunning the world's economy of exchange, we will embody the economy of gift. Estimating our goods, our labor, and our wealth in relation to the kingdom of God, giving away as much as possible. Let us especially beware of money, which has pierced many through with grief. Personal decisions about income and large expenses will be considered prayerfully as a community. By surrendering individual capital, we learn to depend more upon one another and God. I think some of us might hear that language embedded in our American individual free enterprise kind of economy as we are. We might hear that language and think, whoa, Brett, sounds like a cult to me. I'll tell you what I hear when I hear that language. I hear Acts 2 and 4. I hear Acts 2 and 4. I hear a group of Christians dedicated to testifying powerfully to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hear a group of Christians so tired of a Christianity compromised by our current economic models. I hear a group of Christians so in love with God and one another that they're willing to radically renounce and hold things in common, to be one in Christ. You know, given the remarkable language about sharing in our text, it's easy to miss verse 33. In verse 33, right sandwiched between this language of sharing and renouncing possessions, Luke says that they owned everything in common, and with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Testifying to the resurrection cannot be separated with the church's radical sharing of possessions. 
testifying to the resurrection cannot be separated from the church's commitment to a common life together. Right? Resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is both the underlying power and the subject of witnessing to that resurrection. Because when you actually believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, you start to realize that this is not all there is. When you actually believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, defeated death, you stop worrying so much about scarcity. When you actually believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, you start to believe his words that moth and rust destroy thieves break in and steal, and that our real treasures should be stored up in heaven. As one commentator talked about this passage, he said a lot of times the the questions about the resurrection of Jesus, the real tough questions aren't the scientific or the historical how could this happen. He said a lot of times the tough questions about the resurrection are related to the church. It's not how could this happen, it's why don't we look more resurrected? Why don't we look more resurrected? So the question we have to pose to ourselves is how can our posture towards possessions witness to Jesus' rising from the grave? How can we think imaginatively about witnessing to that true covenant community established in the cross and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit? I think one of the ways that it happens is that we start to treat each other like family. I think that's one of the common threads between Lotus House, between Acts, is that these Christians aren't treating each other just like any other institution in the 21st century or the first century. They're treating each other like family. Family members don't let other family members go in need. Family members don't consider this chair, this table, mine. It's ours. Family members hold life in common. How can we begin to think in those terms? How can we begin to witness to the resurrection in those powerful terms, terms that the world will look at and have to say, there's something there. There's something going on there. Church, I'm I'm tired of a Christianity that just mimics and mirrors every other institution in this moment. I'm tired of a Christianity unwilling to, to rethink through how we can witness more powerfully to the common life of the church established in Jesus Christ. That's what we have to do together.
That's what we have to think through and work through together. I pray that the Spirit of God, that Spirit of Pentecost, would give us the hearts and minds set ablaze to think through how we can testify to Jesus Christ rising from the dead with our possessions, with our bodies, with our hearts, with our minds. Let that be our call, church. Let us begin to witness by standing and praising him with one voice together.